counseling. What do they have available now uh, in, uh, for treating medical as well as surgical uh, things in Africa? Certainly have the com- community-based clinics, primary care. You have district hospitals, which could range from 10 to 300 uh, beds. They can provide emergency care and a routine uh, surgery. That depends on whether they get there or not. They may not be able to get there. Tertiary care hospitals, in the, and usually in the bigger cities, provide the specialty care. You also have private clinics and hospitals, but oftentimes they can't afford that kind of thing. And certainly you have NGO clinics and hospitals, and where I was working was in mission hospitals uh, in Africa. But what other problems do you have? You have a problem with the infrastructure issues, but how many of them have a good oxygen, water, electricity? Anesthesia machine. Look at, look at these numbers. Always available. Oxygen, only 28%. Water, maybe 67%. Electricity, 48%. Anesthesia machine, maybe 42%. I've done surgery. In the middle of surgery, electricity went out. And that's a little disconcerting. Uh, but I had some kids around, and my kids would come in and hold a big flashlight for us. We'd complete the surgery. But this is, a, this is a real problem that everybody has to deal with at some time. So the investment in infrastructure is really, it's significant. You've got usually complex surgeries that you can do. Um, general surgeon, you need anesthesia, nurses, operating rooms, surgical instruments, autoclaves, sutures, blood banks, and post-operative care. It's a, it becomes a very complex, and it can be a costly uh, investment. Now one of the problems is that you have fewer, surgeon, fewer physicians per population than any other region in the world in Africa. Surgical disease is the top 15 causes of major disability, and we're measuring disability on these things called DALIs, which are disability-adjusted life years, and that's usually the measurement that's used on a worldwide basis. Just to give you some idea, when you talk about surgical needs, how many surgeons are available in Africa? Look at these things from the different countries. Uganda, one in surgeon of any kind in 270,000 population. But go down here further. Malawi, one per, per 2.4 million people. That's not too good. So these people, even if they get to a physician, may not be able to get to a surgeon. Now, down here in the bottom, look at Atlanta. I used to live in Augusta, Georgia, which is an area called CSRA. But look at this. One surgeon per eight to 9,000 people. Compare that to Malawi. One surgeon of any kind to 2.4 million people. Great shortage. Now, the other thing is, if you do surgery, you've got to have anesthesia, or you can do many things under local anesthesia. Sometimes I've had to be the anesthesiologist as well as the surgeon. You can do spinals. You can use ketamine and manage that type of thing as well. But it's ideal if you have someone who's able to focus completely on the anesthetic needs of the patient. But that crisis there is really much worse than the surgical crisis. And there aren't that many areas where they can get good anesthetic training. Well, this is sometimes what you end up with. You know, as soon as the anesthesiologist gets here, we'll get started. Here he is coming in with his club. He's ready to go. 
four surgical areas uh, where you can really be very effective in saving lives. Emergency care to injury victims, complications of pregnancy and childbirth, such as obstructed labor or bleeding, management of abdominal conditions. That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today, appendicitis, peptic ulcer disease, intestinal obstructions, uh, life-threatening conditions, hernias. How about hernias? You see a lot of hernias in your daily practice. Uh, over there, they're certainly uh, uh, quite large. Well, here's some local transportation in Niger. Kind of a fun thing to do if you're over there. All right, what about acute abdominal pain? All of us will be confronted with this issue of acute abdominal pain. Certainly, appendicitis. Do you need a CAT scan? No, don't need a CAT scan. What about typhoid perforation? Well, they've got free air under the diaphragm. You know you, can, uh, you know you need to operate. Incarcerated hernia, another indication for surgical intervention. Intersusceptions, other forms of intestinal obstruction, and certainly perforated uh, peptic ulcer disease, which we're seeing more of. And, you know, these people don't have access to uh, PPIs and uh, H2 blockers. And so they come in oftentimes perforated or having some uh, evidence of significant uh, bleeding. So the thing to keep in mind is, you know, in my institution, a lot of our residents like to do a CBC and a CAT scan. may take a brief history, very brief exam, a physical exam. But over there, history and physical examination is really probably the most important thing that you have available. And a CBC and a urinalysis, if you have those available, you may be left, as far as your diagnosis is concerned, with diagnostic laparotomy. If you're fortunate, you may have uh, instruments to do a laparoscopy. Um, so other things you may need would be electrolytes. You may not always have that available, or it may take you a long period of time, which you may not want to be delaying for in someone who is very acutely ill. But most places will have some type of a chest X-ray, be able to do an abdominal X-ray. Some places will have flexible endoscopy. Sometimes the flexible endoscopy they have uh, is really pretty poor. Uh, I do flexible endoscopy in my practice, and I can tell you I think it's a great tool. And uh, the problem is you've got to have something that, that's workable. You don't always find that when you're abroad. But what about an ultrasound? Ultrasounds are coming in in, more, in in more hospitals, so it's really an important thing to be able to learn to use. And certainly we're doing it in trauma all the time as a part of what we call the FAST exam. And I'll show you the things that you can do. But learn to read the thing. That's really important because it's very uh, uh, operator dependent. And you have CAT scans at a few, very few places. Not very many uh, mission hospitals have CAT scans. It costs a lot of money, and it costs a lot to maintain them. And what about the acute abdomen? Have HIV. HIV can present with abdominal pain. They may have CMV infections, significant abdominal pain. How are you going to differentiate that? Good history, good physical examination can help you with that. Uh, you may be able to uh, look at CD4 uh, titers now that HIV is becoming very well known uh, in Africa. You're able to get some of that information at, at a lot of these hospitals. Other things, though, could be lymphoma, could be a Kaposi's sarcoma, uh, and it could be TB peritonitis. Keep all these types of things uh, in mind. I'll show you some other causes as well. 
Well, here you are. You're in your operating room. This guy's got an obvious problem. He's got a big distended abdomen, and the surgeon thought he needed to have surgery. Uh, he may not know exactly what it is. He may have seen a chest X-ray which showed free air under the diaphragm, but he's ready to go. And there's his anesthesiologist already intubated the patient, and uh, he, may, he may be no more than just a nurse. In some places, we've, we were able to train people to do some very basic uh, nurse anesthetist type of functions, and they would monitor the patient, be able to take a blood pressure or pulse or watch for a pulse, ox, uh, a pulse oximeter, although that wasn't always uh, available. Other things, for bowel obstruction. What about bowel obstruction? Could be adhesions, could be an incarcerated hernia, could be an intersusception, volumes. Very common. I, I remember most of the places I've gone, volumes uh, of the colon was very common. We would do some of those. Uh, maybe five or six a week. How many times do you see that here in the U.S.? But you've got to be prepared for that. Certainly it could be cancer. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, asterisk can always uh, be a potential source of infection uh, or obstruction. Other things, you could have neoplasms. You could have uh, strictures. You could have impactions. You could even have an obese syndrome. Don't see that very frequently, but occasionally it will happen, especially if they've had some types of uh, spinal surgery, uh, maybe an etiology, and you have to be able to differentiate that. And this is where your endoscope can be very helpful in, uh, in uh, treating these types of uh, patients. All right, what about sig a sigmoid valvulus? It's important to remember the most common valvulus you're going to see in the colon is going to be in the sigmoid. And it's going to be more frequent than the cecum or the transverse colon. And uh, I've never seen actually a splenic flexure involving so although it's been reported. I do have a slide of that, but I've never seen it uh, personally. So sigmoid colon volvulus is what you're going to have to be thinking about as to how you're going to deal with that. Mortality can be high. And they often come in dehydrated. And their food electrolytes may be way out of whack. But it also, in just the surgical management of these problems, manipulation of a very large colon can be very fragile, can perforate while you're handling it, and the mortality rate can be very high. Here's an x-ray. Here again, simple, simple x-ray to get. Flat plate, able to do an upright of the abdo, it helps. Uh, but you can see the dilated, uh, you can see the dilated colon there on the left side and on the right. And they can be very large. Colons can be generally very large in, in Africa because they eat a very, very high fiber diet and have frequent bowel movements a day. That's a normal thing. Um, if they have one bowel movement a day, they think they're constipated. Uh, but they can have colons that can be between 10 and 12, 15 centimeters in diameter normally. So you've got to be thinking about that. Uh, is this a normal problem or is this a potential problem that they have? Complications could be perforation, could be peritonitis, could be gangrene of the colon. You know, if you have a volvulus, you can always look in the rectum. If you have an endoscope, you can look in there and look at the mucosa. You know, is it is it uh, ischemic? Is it gangrenous? Certainly, if it's those types of things, it forces your hand to operate. Other things can certainly be uh, pneumonia, and certainly death can occur from this as well. Well, here's a nice, nice look at sigmoid colon, but it, it's going to be very difficult uh, to manage. And because you handle that, it's very fragile and it falls apart. 
and you can have really not only significant peritonitis abscess, but can lead to the death of the patient. They have very elongated uh, mesentery causing this type of problem. You can see down here uh, on the, in the middle, uh, look, uh, you should see the sepal twist. Here's a gangrenous colon here on the right lower side, more of an ischemic one uh, there uh, in the, at the top. But you can see this kind of this laddering effect of the bowel uh, throughout the, this area. So if you can, if you like not to operate on these people in the middle of the night, but you may be forced to do that, you can stick an endoscope in the rectum to find out what the mucosa looks like. I'm not forced to do this thing now. How's the patient doing? Is he stable? Is he unstable? Um, so that's an option to consider. And you can decompress that volvulus temporarily. You don't have to operate on it, but uh, you can decompress it uh, temporarily. You can do a resection and a primary anastomosis if there's not any evidence of either peritonitis or uh, any gangrene or really ischemic colon. Or you can resect it, do a colostomy, and an apartment pouch. What about intussusception? More likely to occur uh, in younger uh, in kids. 90 95% of present uh, uh, in the uh, younger age group. And it's often due to the pyrus patches becoming enlarged, could be due to tumor uh, causing a lead point uh, as well. Frequently, they'll have a compromised bowel. But the, the, the thing is, you're often going to operate on them that have got bowel obstruction. So you're going to have to operate on them. And then you're going to have to somehow reduce that into susception. And you're going to push the valve back. You're not going to take the valve and pull it. You're likely to tear that area and give yourself a, a significant problem with perforation. This just shows you an intersusception of the small valve. Uh, the lead point, as you can see, is all, all the way down here in the colon. Small valve coming in there, uh, the right side uh, following that arrow. So you have to kind of milk it back in order to reduce this, uh, uh, this intersusception. What about typhoid fever? Interestingly enough, it occurs, and where we get more involved as a surgeon, is it's going to be in a younger age group. But it can occur at any, any age, uh, but frequently we would see them between the ages of, say, 10, 11, and 40 years. And this occurred, interestingly enough, more likely in males than females, and particularly that of uh, perforation. Organisms, salmonella typhi, and uh, perforations usually in the terminal ilium. And uh, a single perforation is the most frequent thing that you will see uh, by far and away. And if you have a single perforation, you it would do a two-layer closure uh, and close it. If you have multiple perforations, you're going to end up uh, with uh, resection. Well, here's your air into the diaphragm. It can be, a, can be just a simple x-ray like this, which is going to be available at most of the mission hospitals or other places that you're going to be, you'll be able to do that. Make sure it's an upright of the abdomen to see this free air under the diaphragm. So what are some of your risk factors with typhoid? Certainly there's going to be a delayed presentation, which is not uncommon at all. And sometimes they'll come in having been sick for two to three weeks prior to coming in to see it. There may be inadequate antibiotic coverage. They may have shock. Uh, on admission, uh, they may have, they may be immunocompromised. They may be of a high ASA uh, uh, category. 
Uh, operation may be delayed for one reason or another, multiple perforations, paranoias, and the complications are going to all be major risk factors uh, in managing uh, these patients, leading to a significant mortality. This is uh, one study that I found in the uh, gastroenterology looking at uh, this issue of typhoid perforation of the bowel. Notice a young age group that were perforated, and notice it was males. More than, uh, far more than female. And the perforation rate was more likely up to about the age of 40. So the, the, the antibiotic treatment is fairly standard, ciproflagyl, imipenem, or neuropenem. Uh, you certainly have to do surgery for a bowel perforation. And the complication rates after surgery, wound infection, peritonitis, abscess, wound dehiscence, fistulas, uh, can be very uh, significant the mortality is high. But here's some perforations for you. On the left is a single perforation. Try and close out with two layers. Uh, I'm not going to get into an argument whether it be a single or a double layer closure, but most people would prefer a double layer closure. There's one with multiple perforations on the right-hand side. And that bowel had to be resected and put back together again. This is one study from Nigeria that I was able to find on these perforations. And then they found the perforation occurred mostly in the second week after the onset of uh, symptoms, uh, symptoms. Surgery, surgery was usually for a simple uh, closure in their particular series. But notice, wound complications was very high. So it's not only doing the surgical procedure, but you have to manage these people. You've got to have people to help you take care of these people uh, post-operatively. You can't be there at the patient's bedside 24-7, but sometimes that's the type of care that they will require. Now, what about abdominal wall hernias? Well, you know, we see a lot of those in the United States. Most, one of the most common things that we do, uh, surgical procedures we do, Certainly on the left, you have a nice little umbilical hernia. That's, that's nice. You can fix that fairly easily. Maybe it'll just close that. Sutures do not be a particular thing. You can give them a cosmetic closing. It looks great. But what are you going to do with this one on the right? You're not talking about it, but you know, the, the terminology out there is not so much for this type of thing. It's not a ventral hernia repair. This is an abdominal wall reconstruction. So you're talking about a big operation to manage this. An operation that requires a lot of uh, intraoperative skill and a lot of great post-operative management because these patients can be complicated and uh, can be very difficult to manage. But you can do it, and you can do it also without uh, prosthesis. And there are techniques to use out there where you can get these things close. What about inguinal hernias? Well, the incidence seems to be a little bit higher in Africa, uh, higher certainly in males than females. Certainly that's true in the U.S., but a much higher incidence uh, in Africa. And uh, it certainly occurs after uh, C-sections as well. More common on the right than on the left. Uh, and a large number of these will extend into the scrotum. How do you like that one? How do you go manage this one? I remember... Uh, I was with uh, uh, a friend of mine, Harold Adolph, who was over here, has probably more experience than anybody else in managing these types of uh, things. And he came to my institution, and I think Harold, you and I did one of those one time. And uh, these can be very complicated. 
But it isn't just a little dinky cosmetic incision in the right lower quadrant in the anal region. You've got to do, you got to do probably a preperitoneal repair called a stopper repair in order to get that type of thing uh, done. But this guy's also lost uh, the ability to push the bowel back into the abdomen. The right of domain is gone, so he's got a complicated problem uh, to deal with. You may have to do this as a stage type of thing. And as Harold always told me, always you're going to end up resecting a large portion of the scrotum and the skin uh, in order to get this thing done so they'll have less complications post-op. This is always a great picture. Uh, and you hope you're not at the end of this uh, uh, running set of thought processes. All right, what about trauma? What about trauma? 1.2 million people die each day around the world from road traffic accidents, and there's no better place to find this uh, than in Africa. 3,300 people die a day from road traffic accidents and other types of trauma. And it's more common, far more common, in the low and middle income countries. It's the third leading cause of death and disability worldwide. And look at Africa, 33 per 100,000 population. And the Americas, 13 per 100,000. In Europe, 8 per 100,000. I would say it would be a little bit higher, though, if you were in Texas. Um, but the economic burden is very significant. They measure that thing with these things called dollars, and they can, it's a premature, someone has a premature death, he has a disability, plus a premature death. That's the way this uh, dollar thing is measured. But it can be very significant. A lot of these people uh, are just non-productive as far as the economy is concerned. Look at some of these issues regarding the causes of injury. Uh, road traffic accidents we mentioned, self-inflicted violence, certainly violence in the country, uh, certainly a place that uh, can be a, a place where these injuries uh, can occur. Maybe a sharp instrument, maybe a blood instrument, uh, this type of thing. It could be a car accident. All these things contribute to the injury on a worldwide basis. Now here's a public transport, air, uh, taxi, carrying a bunch of people hanging all over the place. I couldn't find my slide uh, where I saw a truck and a guy's on the top of this truck. And about uh, 20 feet, 30 feet down the line is a bridge. But, you know, it's going to hit that thing. It's going to be gone. So it's very, very common that they pile these, these transportation areas high. People are on the top of that and complications with the truck. Now, we mentioned earlier the use of sonography. Ultrasonography is one of the best tools you have. I think that and flexible endoscopy uh, and a CBC, history of physical examination, is really what you need to have and do and need to know how to do it well. Certainly with the ultrasound, we use it for fast exams as demonstrated here. Uh, and you can look at all the quadrants. You can look to see if they've got pericardial effusion. You can look down in the pelvis as well. But you can also check the chest, see if they have any fluid in the chest. Uh, that might require a chest tube. Indications for surgery and trauma would be signs of peritonitis, uncontrolled shock or hemorrhage, uh, clinical deterioration during observation, and certainly hemoperitoneum uh, on a fast exam. You can also do a DPL, but most people in the U.S. are not using DPL. Uh, it's not as reliable. If that's all you have, use it. 
But, uh, but the fast exam, if you have an ultrasound alert and you use that, that's far more reliable. Well, here's a, a guy with a penetrating injury. This one here on the left uh, had a little bit of an arrow stuck in his abdomen. You don't, you don't take this arrow out. You go to surgery. Get them, get them anesthetized. Get everything all taken care of. Prep the abdomen, prep the, the spear, the, the knife, uh, the arrow, whatever it is. Prep that out. And then cut the thing off at, right at the level of the skin. I would re-prep re it again. And then make my midline incision. And then I go and try and find that thing. And then I pull out to see to know what it actually is. It is bowel. Maybe it's a blood vessel. That's not good. You pull it, pull it out of a blood vessel, and you, you've got all this bleeding, and you can't get to it uh, quick enough. Now, for these types of penetrating injuries, you may want to explore, uh, explore the, the entry of the wound to see if there's a fascial defect, which would necessitate you doing surgery. Otherwise, you're going to be committed to laparotomy. Certainly, with the gunshot wound, you're going to have to do a laparotomy as well. So you get in there, how are you going to handle the thing? It's just going to be like you do here. You don't have to have fancy equipment. You have to have some sponges. And you pack the, uh, all quadrants off. You control vascular entry, fecal soilage. You follow the trajectory. Pretty simple. Uh, certainly, if you have a high-caliber rifle, uh, there's going to be a lot of peripheral damage around it. You've got to check for those types of things. But mobilize the valve completely. And then uh, oftentimes you can do a bowel resection. And you may even do a colon resection. Actually, the trauma surgeons will want to show it. Even in, with contaminated bowel, um, uh, if the bowel has not stool in it, we can still take the bowel out and put it back together again with fairly good success in that staying out of repair. What about blood trauma? That's another thing. Spleen, liver, small intestines are going to be the most common things. Here's a, a tear in the mesentery. Uh, from a patient who was in a car accident. He had a seatbelt on, but he had a seatbelt injury, and this is one of the common things that you'll see uh, from a seatbelt injury, along with this thing called a chance fracture of the lumbar thoracic uh, spine. But here's a since trauma, the spleen. You don't have a lot of time to sit around with these people, uh, watching as we might in the U.S. Uh, with ultrasound and following when they're going to bleed. And we've been very successful with that here in the U.S., but you don't always have that time. You may be the only surgeon. You may be the only person all around, and uh, you don't have time, so you're going to need to do the surgery. Here, it's a pretty well fractured spleen, and you need to take the spleen out. What about a liver? Bad injury. Bad injury. Fractured can be a very difficult thing to manage, whether you're in the best of circumstances. But the thing is, you can manage and keep that thing under control just using your hands and some sponges. You may just want to pack it off. Not repair it. Just pack it off. Close the abdomen. Come back another day. Get the patient stabilized. Come back another day. Sometimes what you do and the injury is so bad uh, and what you have to do is very significant. A lot of swelling in the bowel. Can't close the abdomen. Be prepared. How are you going to handle that thing? Go leave it open. Patient gets unstable during your surgery, going to leave it open. And you may just want to put a, uh, some type of a drape over it, leave the abdomen off, stabilize the patient, bring it back on the other day, and try to close it. What about some congenital anomalies? Uh, Hirschsprung's disease. 
uh, certainly more commonly presents in the rectus sigmoid. Uh, they can have long segments uh, of, of Hirschsprung's disease, which is a problem with the mid-enteric plexus. Uh, very rarely is it going to be involved in the entire colon. Uh, and they can have very ultra-short segments. That's also very rare. Usually, they're going to be a few centimeters there uh, in the uh, rectus sigmoid region. Now, interestingly enough, in, in Africa, less than 50% of Hirschsprung's disease present in the neonatal period. In the U.S., more than 90% will occur early, and they'll pick them up and fix them uh, earlier. So they can get perforations. That colon distends out. They can get perforations that way. They may present with abdominal distension, fever, diarrhea. Notice they may have other anomalies as well, as much as 20%. Here's where your history and physical exam is. Newborn baby not having, uh, uh, not having uh, bowel movements, uh, abdominals distended. Do, a, do an examination. Examine the rectum. How many times do we do not do that here in the U.S.? Don't do a rectal exam. It's amazing what kind of pathology uh, you can find just by doing a simple uh, rectal examination. Get a flat plate of the abdomen. Cross table lateral is important. Just tells you an idea as to how far down the air goes. If it's below, above or below the coccyx, will depend on what you do as far as your surgical intervention. Hopefully it's low. You may be able to do a perineal operation and uh, bring it down and do your uh, suturing just above the uh, dentite line. You can make a biopsy with a suction biopsy. Now, true, pathologists are not always available. That may be an issue. I know some hospitals will send their, their things back to the U.S. Uh, for further uh, evaluation. But you do it on the posterior wall, two to three centimeters above the uh, dentate line. You may have to do uh, temporizing colonic uh, decompression uh, in order to uh, take care of the complications, certainly of the uh, diagnosis, uh, just doing a suction biopsy really is very low. Here's a patient with Hirschsprung's disease. They've got that very, very distended abdomen. Notice down there on the left lower side, very distended colon, very fragile colon uh, to manage. And, they, and while you're handling it, it may not perforate, but it may split and that uh, serosa will split. You may have just come across the muscle splits as well. You don't want to have uh, mucosa pooching out, and it can be very difficult uh, to manage. So very careful management at this time. You may end up having to do a colostomy as a temporizing uh, procedure. Here's some of the options for your repair. Top left-hand side, most people, I think, are doing Swenson's and uh, Suave procedures. Um, but they can be done. You can bring the colon out, as you see there in the middle, uh, and then you can suture, make do your suturing down from below. Makes it a lot easier than having to go in from uh, the transabdominal area. And you see that down there on that right lower side, the final product, and you can get a very good result that way. The problem you have, though, is down the left-hand side. Colostomy bag. Do you have a colostomy bag? I, I ran into that problem when I was in Ethiopia. We didn't have colostomy bags. How do, you, how do you manage a colostomy bag? That can be very, very difficult to, to manage. Uh, you can take a bag, but how do you get it to fix to the skin? And if it doesn't fix, then all that stuff runs out all over the abdominal wall. It becomes a big, big issue. So think about that ahead of time. What are you going to use for colostomy bags? I, I uh, 
uh, just at one of the conferences running to show a friend of mine. And I was able to get him some colostomy bags that we had in the U.S. He's going to take them, reuse them over and over and over again until the thing finally breaks. And even then, probably repair the bags that you have because they're, they're like gold up there to, to really make it as reasonable as possible for the, for the poor patient that has that colostomy. What about some of the uh, uh, rectal malformations that are out there? Very common issue that may need to be seen. Again, this is where you have this issue of, uh, of rectal examination. These are some of the ones that are listed that can uh, cause bowel obstructions and other types of uh, uh, problems for these patients. Some of the anorectal malformations you may see might be a perineal fistula, uh, maybe a, a, a recto uh, urethral fistula, maybe a, a recto vesicle fistula, and perforate anus we talked about uh, as well, and certainly rectal atresia. So it can be very complex. Think about these cases. You don't do them very often. I don't do these types of things very often. I go to the books and look. Certainly got Google in most of the places. That's a good option to look at as well. Also look at Medscape. That's another one. You get a lot of good information in a short, very short period of time. So with the, with the, if you've got something in the perineal region, a fistula there, you can do an anaplastic. Uh, we talked about gas above and below the coccyx is what to do. But, you know, you still can do a colostomy with all your problems there. Wait until another day, find out better what you need to do, or more expert uh, help comes along and have more experience with these types of problems. What about, uh, what about obstructions due to worms? Do they ever, we don't see that here in the United States. Asperis is one of those uh, things that can certainly uh, do that. More common in children. And uh, someone said that it took 50 to 60 worms to cause a bowel obstruction. I don't know who really took the, the time to count the worms. Uh, but uh, someone did that, said that's what it was, so think about that. The treatment of raspers is really not surgery, for sure. It's certainly going to be uh, albendazole uh, to take care of these uh, types of things. But if you have to operate, they are causing obstruction. You have to manually take worms out. It's not really an exciting thought to think about. But they may have gangrenous bowel as well, so you may have to end up with a bowel resection. You certainly don't want to have a worm caught in the middle of your anastomosis. That's not good. Because uh, it will cause a problem leakage afterwards. Here's a, here's a good example. Here's, a, here's some dead bowel uh, and a small bowel. This is a little bit of a combination of ascaris and, and some tapeworms. And so you know, how to get these things out. But what about what about the, the gallbladder? Can you find asterisk in the gallbladder? The answer is yes. It goes up, and this is more common actually uh, in China, where they see a lot of uh, asterisk, and it goes up into the biliary tree. Interesting to note that if you take dye that you would ordinarily use for uh, an IVP, for instance, uh, that, you know, that will actually kill the asterisk worm. Problem is you got to get it out. Problem is the biliary tray that will cause a significant amount of stricture, which can be a complicated problem on a long-term basis. What about a kind of conical cyst? Occasionally you have to operate on these. These people are really treated medically. That's the best way to treat. But occasionally they have so symptomatic that you have to take care of these these things. You've got in the top left-hand side you see your cyst, but you've got to get that. You've got to get that 
contents of that cyst out, which you're going to try and aspirate with a large needle. You're going to pack the liver off. And probably the least expensive way is you've got to immobilize uh, the aconococcus the that are inside. And absolute alcohol is probably your least expensive way of doing it. But remember, aspirate first. Don't inject first. You inject, you'll blow this thing apart, and they, and they can get anaphylactic shock. And that's not going to be a good thing to have happen. But once you get, once you get the conococcus, you get it immobilized, you can then excise the cyst, it's shown in the right-hand uh, upper side, and then you've got this defect in the liver, and you can usually pack that off, uh, usually with omentum, which is usually available uh, in this area. Now, what about uh, colon cancer? It does occur, not as frequently. Uh, certainly in the U.S., it may be 60 to 100,000 population. In Africa, maybe only one per 100,000 uh, population. Uh, but other things can happen. Schistosomiasis, which affects just about every organ in the body, <coughs> can certainly give you colitis and, and give you a very aggressive form of colon cancer. It seems to alter the P53 uh, tumor suppressor gene. And uh, certainly the uh, Burkitt's uh, lymphoma is usually not something you're going to operate on surgically, but can be a, a surgical issue uh, and cause a bowel obstruction. Uh, Dr. Uh, Adolf was kind enough to give me this uh, picture. It shows a nice ovarian cyst. Uh, you'll see some of these. Nice big old cyst that can manage. It's hard to believe that someone would go around with something this size in their abdomen. But, uh, but many of these people will. They have no access to surgical care. And by taking this out, you know, she can get uh, significant relief of her symptomatology in the lower abdomen. What about intra-abdominal infections? Well, the most common ones we're going to deal with are certainly going to be appendicitis. And be aware of that. Perforated peptic ulcer disease, free air into the diaphragm. Patients complain of a history of some epigastric burning, and all of a sudden, boom, something happens very, very quickly, demonstrating uh, peptic ulcer perforation. And it may be that uh, in that type of uh, situation, it's more likely going to be the duodenum, probably three times more common in the duodenum uh, than in the uh, stomach. Typhoid perforations we talked about. And so... Uh, um, PID is certainly another thing women need to, you need to consider that uh, in women as far as infection is concerned. Mortality can be high, oftentimes because they come in very late. They don't come in within 24 hours of their onset of symptoms. They often come in sometimes a week, two weeks, or longer in their presentation uh, to you. But what about these issues about primary, secondary, and tertiary? Uh, peritonitis, because these are issues that, that we do have to face, although some of these can be managed uh, medically, uh, and they all require some degree of antibiotic uh, management, uh, but there's something that sometimes the surgeon has to get involved with as well. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. It's amazing to think that that would occur, but some people are susceptible to that. Uh, those who have cirrhosis of the liver, nephrotic syndrome, ascites, um, they may be on dialysis, they may have HIV, and that may, uh, those people are certainly more susceptible to that. 
What about secondary? And those would be ones you wouldn't necessarily treat surgically. What about secondary? Peritonitis, these are the most common things that can occur. Antibiotics and laparotomy. Uh, you've got to get source control. Very important to do that. And certainly, often they will require reoperation. And sometimes people will just leave the abdomen open because they know if there's so much infection going on in the abdomen, it just had to come back. So the important thing in my mind often is save the fascia. Save the muscle fascia because you want it to be good when you close. You don't want it to be torn up with repeated laparotomy and sutures. And so think about the open abdomen, even, uh, even in Africa. So what about uh, an intra-abdominal abscess? You certainly do antibiotics, surgery, pelvic abscess. We may be able to drain it transvaginally. Ultrasound will help you with that. Uh, and a good rectal exam will help you. Uh, or you're able to do it uh, through the rectum. It's another option. What about a subphrenic abscess? Well, sure, you can go transabdominally. But if you can localize where that abscess is, you can control it. It's much easier than for the patient to manage those uh, by training them uh, posterior. You may have to resect the rib in order to do that, uh, but you'll save that intra-abdominal contamination uh, that can be associated with the subfrontal abscess. But what about this issue? We're short of surgeons. How are we going to? How are we going to go? I may go for a couple weeks or a month at a time, and I do an excellent number of surgeries at that time, and, and everything, but then I go home. I've got to train people while I'm there. Otherwise, I'm just going over there and just doing some things and coming home. Best thing would be is you could go over there and spend six months, a year, a lifetime, as some of the people in this room have done. They've done a phenomenal job managing some of the things that they've seen out there. They've been extremely creative in the type of things that they've done and managing. They've been, had wonderful results for this. Well, we got interested in this through what's called a PAX, or the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. We got interested in this, uh, David Thompson, a missionary at the Bone, West Africa, was thinking about the problem. been there 25 years. He said, what's going to happen when I leave? Who's going to take my job? And so as a result of that, talking with some other missionaries at the time, uh, there was a discussion and the initial formation of the uh, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons to train surgeons in Africa. And the first, first surgical training program we had was in Niger. Dr. Adolph, who's over here on the, to my right, uh, was the one who, who began that, pro that first program did a phenomenal job. And actually, the trainee who he initially trained, uh, the program had to be discontinued for a while, has, has recently restarted. But that trainee went on and got further trained in Nigeria and is now back as one of our uh, co-directors of our PACS program uh, in Niger, Niger. And he's doing a phenomenal job there uh, with one of the other surgeons. But the idea with PACS was train 100 surgeons by the year uh, to stay in training in Africa, to stay in Africa for a lifetime. And the goal was to do that by the year 2020. Last week we had a board meeting and we discussed this issue and we got the data. We expect to meet that goal by the year 2019, which is really an exciting thing for us. 
But as of January, we'll have 53 residents uh, in PACS training. And uh, it's a five-year program, just like here in the U.S. <coughs> and it's something that I encourage you to all try and get involved with. We all need trainers globally, not just to type of surgery but everything else that, uh, that we do. So I just encourage you to think about these things as we move forward. So what do I conclude out of all this? We need many more surgeons of all types, all specialists. If you want to do pediatric, you want to do ENT, you want to do neurosurgery, you want to do cardiac surgery, you want to do abdominal surgery, chest, whatever it is, you're needed. Complicated abdominal surgery can be performed with basic surgical equipment, anesthesia, and paramedical personnel support. We need help in those areas. Nurses are needed in, in great numbers. But I think the key on a long-term basis is training. And so I'll leave that with you. Think about it. What is your role? If you're just in medical school or wherever you are, residency, out in practice, thinking about what's God calling me to do, I think about it because God has called all of us to serve. And this may be an area that could be very useful. to uh, uh, any questions. Uh, Harold, you may have a couple comments. I don't know, but uh, you always have something wise to say. <laughs> I, I was glad you put that lion in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sending me that picture. Uh, I, I didn't ask you the circumstances around that, but I'll ask you that later. I hope that was not charging where you were located. So. Yeah. I would always go with a place that would be able to follow up where I was going. If I was able to do the surgery, usually there was some kind of a surgeon there or someone who had a lot of experience in surgical areas. So I wanted to be sure that there was going to be follow-up with that. And, um, you know, I did some short-term work in New Mexico, and we'd go down for a week or two, and we'd set up in a schoolhouse. But we all, even in that situation, even if I did some surgery there, we always had someone to follow up. Uh, with the patient. So we didn't just do the surgeries and leave. That's, that, I think, is potentially a big problem. Yes? Well, didn't hear you mention much about amyloidosis in Africa. We had amyloidosis in preparation uh, in, in, uh, in Indonesia, a number of cases, including liver abscesses and that type of thing. But amyloidosis that caused perforation requires resection. Yeah. Did you have much, much amyloidosis? I haven't seen much amyloidosis. I actually saw more in the United States than I've seen abroad. And uh, they, they come in with some very, very bad uh, colitis. And we've had to do uh, emergency surgery on those types of people. And some of them may perforate. The liver abscesses, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, uh, you know, right upper quadrant pain in Mexico is not gallstones, it's an amoebic abscess. And so, you know, you have to think about that. 
In those types of situations, you certainly want to treat them uh, with uh, antibiotics unless it became more of a problem. Then you may have to treat it. What would you do in those types of situations? Yes, yeah, so we would treat them. Depends on the size. Uh, of course, ultrasound, because we had liver cancer, it's so great. Ultrasound was tremendous. You know, we use it like a sensor. And so you make the diagnosis, and most of the time we treat them medically, but many times the, the, you know, if you get 10 to 11 to 15 centimeters in size, we would uh, bring them sometimes percutaneously. Uh, sometimes we do an open procedure and uh, put in some penrose drains, and they generally did well. It was uh, it was an easy colitis that was more of a problem in terms of morbidity and mortality. I heard an interesting number which said that even in the United States, 10% of the people are actually infected uh, with uh, amoeba. And we take care of them so early and get, get it under, under control so that we don't see any of the complications. I don't see it occasionally, but occasionally we would do a total colectomy for, uh, for a very significant uh, amoebic uh, colitis. That could be very precious. One other thing, uh, I would commend posterior sagittal anal rectal plastic for imperfect anus. Uh, if you have the opportunity of considering that poss- possibility, you might have to do it. That's a, such an excellent procedure uh, as, a, as composed, as prepared, uh, compared to all the other procedures I've ever seen. So we started doing uh, posterior sagittal anal rectal plastic after going to a conference in Birmingham at UAB and the doctor from Mexico who described it is down in Rhode Island, or at least he was the last time I did. Uh, and it's a tremendous procedure. It's like it's the difference between night and day. Yeah. Well, I know we've got to close, but uh, I would just want you to get in contact with these, with Harold and Tom. Uh, just talk to them afterwards and ask them some questions. They have spent a lifetime doing a wonderful job in the mission field and have operated uh, they're great surgeons and they've got a wealth of knowledge and help and so they can give you some real, real good ideas from the field where they've been for a long time. Thank you.